Welcome to our first Business Barometer Breakfast podcast. While we're not able to do these in person, as we usually would in Pall Mall, we're looking forward to answering as many of your questions as we can uh, here in this podcast. My name is Joe Fitzsimon, Senior Policy Advisor at the IOD, and with me today is our Chief Economist, Tej Parekh. Welcome, Tej. We've received a lot of questions, ranging from questions about Brexit to questions on the green economy, and we'll be aiming to answer as many of these questions as possible during today's session. So, Tej, would you like to take the first question? Sure. Hi there, Joe. Um, so the first question is a question we've been receiving a lot over the past year. Um, and essentially, it is about the issue of owner directors. And our member is asking us, um, do we agree that it is outrageous and unacceptable um, that these companies have been have gone without support during um, coronavirus. Um, well, I mean, our view is, is we certainly think that owner directors should be getting their fair share of um, income support, you know, much in line with what um, businesses and the self-employed are getting through the um, well, furlough scheme and obviously the self-employed income support scheme. Now, a little bit of background on this. So part of the reason why owner directors don't qualify for those schemes is that they may primarily remunerate themselves um, in their own company dividends and, and less through the PAYE system. And so the furlough scheme, which is mainly through the PAYE system, means that, you know, a lot of these owner directors don't really stand much to gain, you know, A, by furloughing themselves and B, by earning the furlough amount because it will be so so little. I mean, over time, we have been pressing the government to try and widen both of these schemes to ensure owner directors can be eligible for some form of income support. It's been quite clear, however, that initially there were administrative concerns from HMRC that they won't be able to accommodate something like this, given the kind of amounts of paperwork and evidence that would need to be brandished in order to prove what is uh, a company dividend from a um, an investment dividend, for example. Um, but over time, we've kind of shifted to um, pushing the government to actually just produce quite simple grants, income grants that can cover the income of, of many of these SMEs. Um, there was some success in Northern Ireland where they have their own um, SME, small limited company um directors scheme and the hope is that in in england and beyond that the local discretionary grant funds would be eligible to provide support for owner directors so we're going to keep pushing this line um, because this seems to be the most fruitful approach and obviously the most quickest and least complex um, so i would urge uh, members to check in with their local council to check if they are um, providing grant support for 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 owner directors in in this situation, um, and we're also working with the um, local authorities to try and develop a list of those businesses that might, um, well, list of those authorities that might be doing this, uh, and meanwhile pushing Treasury on the other side. Absolutely. Well, we certainly will continue to signpost um, and and share uh, all of the most up to date information as we receive it on that. 
Um, and I see a, a member has gotten in touch and asked if the government's yo-yo-like open and closing of lockdown has potentially de-incentivized businesses from trying to trade during lockdown. We know that there's been sort of many challenges for 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 our members and for leaders over the last twelve months, really, and and of course over the past few months of this year, it's been particularly challenging with the end of the transition period and indeed ongoing restrictions and 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 at, in many cases lots of uncertainty. I think it's fair to say I, I'd be keen to hear your views on this, Ted. I think it's fair to say that there are certainly some green shoots coming through from our members and. Uh, some optimism about sort of the, the the later part of this year, as we have the sort of roadmap now, and there's that bit more certainty um, moving forward. We, we our members feel more able to to plan than they perhaps have been able to do over the past number of months. Yeah, I think I think you're right on that, Joe. So last year was certainly well a yo-yoing where we saw, you know, various kind of back and forth moves in restrictions as we left the summer and we're moving into the autumn and the winter. But I, I think what's happened with the roadmap is that it's given some clarity and also a bit more assurance that there won't be this yo-yoing. It seems to be that the government want to, as best possible, try and carve out a linear path um, where they will be evaluating at each step whether they can move to the next level before. Um, which should help uh, to some extent to um, reduce the risk of us going back into higher restrictions down the line. Yeah, absolutely. I see another member has got in touch to ask about international business travel specifically and whether we, we envision this returning to 2019 levels. Do we believe that to be the case? We've certainly done a lot of research on this over the past number of months and some of the data was was collected towards the end of last year, we asked our members about their intended use of the workplace. Um, and what came through very clear from that is that we, we know that, that organizations and, and leaders have had to pivot during this pandemic and in many cases leverage new technologies and new ways of working. Um, about 74%, so about three quarters of our members um, when we when we surveyed last year said that they would be keeping increased home working after coronavirus. Um, and more than half of, of the people that we, the members that we polled said that their organization's intended use of uh, the workplace in the longer term would be, uh, would be reduced significantly lower than, than it had been. Um, so there's, there's certainly um, a shift towards uh, blended approaches to working. And, and it, while it's very difficult at this point to know exactly how business travel will look, um, we we've seen lots of benefits come out of the uh, the new ways of working and in many cases it's it's quite an inclusive way of working to have virtual engagements and and to be able to uh, to do things at distance can be quite inclusive and helpful for business leaders and for their employees so we would it's certainly one to watch but at this stage it seems difficult to say if 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 we'd actually see it return to 2019 levels even beyond the pandemic yeah, I mean, another point to add to that is, you know, the reduction in international business travel has somewhat reduced um carbon footprint. And, you know, I think we know how big ESG issues are for organisations. You know, a lot of them will be looking at things as we start to reopen and we'll start to consider whether it's even necessary to be doing those long haul trips. 
I mean, I think eventually, at least for the next 12 to, to 18 months, we're probably going to see some international restrictions and perhaps um, the rise of vaccine passports to assist some type of travel. But it's it's hard to see a reduction in kind of the quarantine levels um, on arrival into different countries and the restrictions until, you know, a higher level of people are vaccinated globally. I think there'll still be some some restrictions and hesitance as well to travel on that. Um, I mean, like touching on the international point more broadly is we've had a lot of questions about Brexit and actually a, a particularly uh, nicely worded one, I'd say, from a member uh, basically saying if the current issues uh, with trading with the EU are considered simply teething problems, then how long will it be before we start needing dentures? Um, well, I mean... Ultimately, a lot of our members have been facing a lot of challenges adjusting to new trading terms with the EU. Um, look, the lack of tariffs has clearly been an advantage in, in having a deal, but it's those non-tariff barriers that are particularly challenging for SMEs. Um, and the types of issues we're hearing are a lot of organisations trying to deal with the additional customs administration at the border, trying to get a sense of the licensing and the additional documentation they may need for certain types of products is all adding to, I think, the confusion. Now, early on in the year, we found that around 20% of our members had halted trade with the EU, um, either on a permanent basis or, or just temporarily, just to try and get a sense of um, what they need to be doing. I think in the coming months, particularly as the COVID cloud also kind of lifts over the whole trading environment, we might get a clearer picture of the impact on UK-EU trade. Um, the positive is, is look, there is a SME Brexit support fund, which allows SMEs in particular to access the professional advice they need to deal with these issues. And so that should go some way towards supporting businesses. Uh, we're going to keep pushing the government to ensure that that fund is expanded because I'm sure there'll be a high demand for it and triaging members to the additional support that the government is putting out on this. Now, I suppose the other side, the other development of Brexit is uh, we've had a few questions here from our members on the Northern Ireland protocol and the Northern Ireland issue. I mean, just a just a quick summary of of what's happened there and, and, and really what it's about. So the, the Northern Ireland Protocol was essentially put in place as part of the Brexit negotiations in order to uh, protect the Good Friday Agreement. So essentially, the point was to avoid um, a hard border on the island of Ireland, i.e. between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. What that has meant is, in effect, there's been uh, some form of border between Great Britain and products going into Northern Ireland. And there are there have to be checks as goods move from Great Britain into Northern Ireland at Northern Ireland ports, if they are then obviously eventually to be exported into the EU, i.e. Ireland. Um, now... There's clearly been a lot of challenges with organisations trying to get to grips with that whole process. 
um, and this applies to a number of specific products in terms of paperwork, um, there was a, a relaxation in kind of implementing implementing the rules fully. Uh, and what's happened is, is the the UK government decided to to unilaterally uh, relax them and extend them, um, extend those kind of reduced um, grace periods on on checks and and various other documentation um, until October, which the EU has claimed is a is a breach of international law, um, and so. Really, the question now, I think, from from a number of businesses and members is, what does this spat um, mean for the ongoing Brexit negotiations? Of course, we know that there are plenty more elements of the Brexit deal to be um, hashed out, particularly on mutual recognition of qualifications, financial services and and wider professional services um, industry altogether. Um, it clearly, you know, it clearly creates a bit more bad blood between uh, the the UK and the EU. Um, and also, let's not forget that, you know, the US as well, also, particularly with Biden, that they're pretty interested in, you know, he's had his un- mentioned his unwavering support for the Good Friday Agreement. And so he's been urging the UK to comply with EU regulations. So I think, you know, with the with the kind of the background of Brexit negotiations last year, with the whole kind of politics around vaccines as well with the EU, um, it doesn't kind of spell an ideal picture for ongoing negotiations in this space. Um, but we mustn't also forget that it's also partly, um, you know, a lot of EU businesses themselves do rely on UK services and professional activities as well. So, you know, it's not entirely the playing field isn't entirely tilted in, on one side. There is strong connection between businesses on both sides of the channel. And so hopefully that will ensure that some, you know, level heads do prevail in this on-go- ongoing negotiations. But um, it, it is it is a bit of a concern. Um, and I think it's, it's one, one that we'll kind of continue to watch to see if it does affect those negotiations going forward. Absolutely, one to watch, Tej, and uh, certainly continue to do so. Um, I can see there's a question here asking, how does society get across all the specific challenges needed to get carbon neutral? Um, and how how can the IOD specifically support UK sustainability? And, and we've had quite a few questions on sustainability, which is great. Um, there's certainly a lot of work we're, we're doing at the IOD on this front. We know that sustainability is a key challenge for our members and something that they are very uh, very engaged with and i know that we've had many discussions with with members over the past number of weeks about this and in terms of activity we're undertaking ourselves we're looking at present uh, across our own sort of professional development and looking at ways in which we can embed further support for members relating to sustainability we've also got our national sustainability task force which is chaired and led by IOD members, and that task force will be uh, providing useful resources and signposting members to useful tools and information via the uh, the IOD's uh, Sustainable Business Hub on the website. So we'll continue to share resources and tools and information through that hub. There will be various events run across the IOD, across all branches and nations, 
um, throughout this year and, and indeed beyond. In, in, in the run-up to COP26, you'll see a particular, uh, particularly large range of activities to engage with. Um, one to draw particular attention to is the online global conference that's been run in Scotland by the IOD Scotland team. Um, so that will be on the, the 2nd and 3rd of September. There's some information about that on the website at the moment, but uh, there will be more information to come. But certainly an agenda that, that our members are very interested in. There are many challenges. Uh, the challenge for SMEs often being navigating all of the various different uh, pieces of information and trying to understand the way in which they can reduce the carbon footprint within their own organization. Um, and so we've had another question on Green asking about how British businesses are looking to invest in, in tech that'll help them to decarbonize and uh, will such tech uh, help them with uh, winning additional business and, and keeping their current customers? Well, there's no doubt um, that there's, there's certainly a shift uh, in, in, in general public, people are incredibly uh, interested in sustainability and rightly so. It's it's certainly uh, obvious that this will be a big priority for, for us all. Um, and and COP26 is, is certainly a very positive piece of activity, which is drawing a lot, a lot of attention to this at the moment. Um, I know one of the things you've done quite a lot of work around, Tej, is, is related to the recently announced super deduction for expenditure on um qualifying sort of plant and machinery investments and and those companies can claim i believe is at 130% capital allowances on on those qualifying investments yeah that's right so there are some there is some possibility through the chancellor's super deduction announced in the budget that could be used towards um green investments um however it's not fully comprehensive and I think there are some green technologies um, that, you know, currently would not be eligible underneath that. And I think, you know, I think the Chancellor did miss a bit of a trick in actually providing a, a specific green incentive, I think, in this budget. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll be, we'll be looking to, to uh, advocate for, for further incentives of that nature that will support members with that. Uh, adoption of, of green tech in their own organizations. And then another question here on um, the reduction in the electric vehicle grant um, and the threshold. So so that, that electric vehicle grant has been reduced from £3,000 to £2,500 um, and it can be used uh, for electric vehicles under £35,000. It's it's definitely a challenge to see sort of a reduction in these types of incentives. It's perhaps a difficult time to be reducing these types of incentives as we, uh, you know, have stretching targets to get to net zero as a, as a country. Um, I suppose it's worth saying that you know switching to an electric vehicle uh, still has many sort of barriers. There are sort of high upfront costs and uh, availability of uh, charging points and so on. But you know there are uh, sort of lower operating costs and fuel and maintenance and investment can, can can be lower in other ways. So we, you know, we would we would like to see no further reductions in these types of incentives, as as it does form a really important part of the the range of of things that will help us get to net zero. Um, and it's, it's certainly worth keeping an eye on these types of incentives uh, over the coming over the coming months.
Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, touching on the whole kind of green recovery piece is this wider question we've received from a member on um, the economic recovery and future competitiveness, specifically asking about uh, what we're doing to improve productivity. Now, productivity was a challenge for the UK economy before the pandemic. It's, it's essentially low productivity was a legacy of the, the post-financial um, crisis period. And then it was exacerbated by um, Brexit uncertainty, which meant, you know, businesses weren't investing. I, I, I think the key elements of why productivity have been low in the UK, I think, is that business investment piece. So getting businesses to invest in um, new to firm technology, moving up the tech tech ladder, uh, and, and adopting the digital economy, not just to kind of um, improve their operations, but to get a better understanding of their operations in their business so they know where they can make efficiencies. Um, the other element has been uh, skills. So there's always been a need to try and help support uh, UK to boost its management and leadership skills capability. Obviously, the IOD focuses on the leadership angle and supporting directors to become better directors of highly performing organizations. But there's also a wider piece on how uh, managers as well can be um, can improve their management styles. And that's this is, you know, this is arguably an even bigger challenge because you're having to manage staff in, in quite a diffuse way working from home and you know that that poses all its own challenge for for productivity for organizations so i think skills and training is going to be a big element of that and i should say on both of these fronts uh the chancellor's budget did with its help to help to grow scheme and providing incentives for, for, for digital investment and um, also management training which we've um highlighted parts of our website and um, members should definitely check those out but I think this is just just the beginning and there should be more of these types of schemes to follow I think the last piece on on productivity overall is I suppose the two ones I've spoken about are more firm specific but there's also UK-wide productivity and there was this promise of leveling up the UK which really means investing in um, innovative firms across the country, investing in infrastructure, both physical and digital infrastructure across the country. Now, all of these things are things that can supercharge the speed of business and the activity of business, which drives productivity. So I think those are things that hopefully, you know, whilst they weren't so much addressed in this budget, will be addressed in the, in the government's plan for growth going forward. Absolutely. And speaking of productivity, we've got some questions here. Um, that relate to uh, working working patterns. Um, so one member asks about uh, asking how will businesses balance the need to return to the office with the desire of some employees to continue working from home. Um, the future the future of workforce is certainly a fascinating area at the moment, and it's something we've been we've been examining quite closely ourselves. We know from from our members that uh, generally there is a, a desire to to increase the hybrid approach to working and to reduce the use of the traditional workplace. And we, we spoke about some of those stats earlier. I suppose in terms of balancing the, the needs of individuals, we, we know that um, there are many sort of benefits associated with 
uh, remote working with flexible approaches to working and new tech certainly helps to cut down on uh, travel, which has those positive environmental impacts that you spoke about, Tej, um, but also improving people's work-life balance and, and reducing commuting time. Um, we, we expect to see workplaces looking quite different in, in the future. We, we may see sort of um, a hybrid approach, which, which would really involve sort of uh, individuals working a number of days from, from a certain amount of their time from the office and a certain amount of their time from home. Um, and, you know, these kinds of arrangements, they allow the organization to remain a competitive organization to attract talented individuals. And it's great for increasing diversity for working parents and individuals who might have caring or family responsibilities. It also allows the organization to attract people who maybe live outside the city um, but would consider commuting, uh, for example, once or twice a week. Um, so there are there are many benefits. I suppose what we'll we'll likely see is uh, someone has asked us another question here um, relating to whether organizations may need to downsize their offices. Uh, but they're saying that in the past, people have tend to work from home on a, a Monday and a Friday, meaning that the same capacity might be needed midweek. It's it's certainly difficult to to picture exactly how this may work in practice, but I think what we will likely see is sort of increased commercial use of of current sort of workspace and redesigning workspaces so that, you know, there is sort of a level playing field for those working remotely and those able to be there physically. And we've seen some really innovative examples of organizations uh, using AR and, and, and VR as, as part of their tech solutions to to really drive forward this this innovation in terms of working patterns. But uh, probably one to watch. Very difficult to say at this stage exactly what that might look like. But we one thing we do know is that uh, our members are planning on on reducing their use of the traditional workplace significantly and and having a more blended approach to to working post pandemic. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of interesting questions for businesses, particularly over the coming months as the economy reopens, um, and trying to get a sense of um, you know what demand is there to return to the office. I know number of firms will probably be sending out surveys to their employees um but also just trying to trying to work out you know how how can you in some way encourage employees to come back to the office if many of them have become used to it and what this really means for contracts and whether you are you know if you do stipulate that you have to come in in certain days whether that's a disadvantage to some employees who have potentially moved home further away and therefore increase their commute time, you know, during the pandemic. There's a whole host of questions to be asked here. So I think it would be a very interesting, um, you know, to see how that debate plays out for organisations. Um, we've received two questions on taxes and actually quite opposing questions. So the first question is, um, essentially asking why didn't the Chancellor make more of an effort to claw back some of the increased profits that accrue to online retailers uh, such as Amazon um, in this in this budget? And then the second one is around surely we should keep taxes low in order to try and attract more businesses and to support growth. Um, so I mean, taking taking the first question. So I think there is a question around 
business rates in particular? Because we know that obviously a lot of firms, bricks and mortar firms, feel a bit disadvantaged to those online retailers uh, who aren't paying business rates. And there's a lot of movement in this space by the government who have pushed back their consultation on whether there should be some type of online sales tax, which might capture the organizations like Amazon uh, within it. Um, so I think it is on the government's radar that, you know, there is a bit of an unfair playing field in in the kind of, um, in the retail market in particular. And there is, it makes sense in a modern economy to be seeing how you can you can tax these digital activities, which is a new kind of, economic platform so i think that's something we're going to see more of going forward but it feels like the treasury want to try and take a multilateral approach to this of course the types of firms you know when you're looking at online sales they are global in nature and it's important that at an oecd level or a wider level that these kind of debates are had so it doesn't cause wider trade tensions and concerns so i think that is the the kind of approach that the government might be taking on that the second question on keeping taxes low i mean this was essentially our argument going into the budget so around 80 percent of our members basically felt that the chancellor should focus on supporting the recovery rather than tending to um the deficit and, and debt now that argument is stronger given that interest rates are at a, at a record low and the cost of servicing the public debt um is relatively low and therefore it makes sense that you should keep taxes low and spend in order to kind of drive the economy forward and out of the recovery and i think to some extent the chancellor has done that so taxes have been kept quite low um and until the corporation tax hike further down the line and incidentally that corporation tax hike does still leave the uk being one of the most competitive um nations there are in in certainly the g7 and g20 on on the corporation tax rate um it's also protected somewhat to the fact that a lot of smes will avoid that higher tax tax burden i think the bigger question is is to there was always going to be a need to claw back some of the expenses. And I think businesses, you know, were fortunate in the sense that it wasn't a tax hike that we were facing immediately, um, you know, in the coming tax year, or there wasn't even any change to a capital gains tax either. But I do agree with the sentiment that it's important to create like a sheltered environment for businesses to grow whilst and therefore keeping taxes low are important. I think the other element I should just add is, you know, the other element of being a competitive nation on tax is not just the rate of corporation tax, but also your reliefs and your capital allowances. And I think that's a big piece that the government should be looking at um, and in its tax agenda going forward. Thank you, Tej. And I see another question here relating this time to, uh, to skills. And the question is, how can we ensure that how can we ensure government believe that professionalism on boards leads to better outcomes and fewer governance disasters? I mean, this is an area the IOD does uh, a lot of work. We have our own sort of um, range of, of world-class professional development and our own charter director qualification. And we have some really great 
um, you know, excellent case studies that that depict some of the um, the, the great work that uh, many directors are able to do following on from those qualifications. I think it's important to talk, uh, you know, often we hear a lot about the about governance uh, failures. And, and I think what's really important is, is also talking about where governance has gone well um, and, and to take those examples of where governance has gone well and to, to perhaps use case studies that can be a really effective way of, of sharing those examples. Yeah, you're right. I think in the, in the media, there's obviously um, a lot of stories at the moment on governance disasters and it kind of adds to mistrust of, of business. But um, it's important to to also shout about the, the positive examples of where things have worked. And I think there'll be plenty of those examples, particularly as we enter the a, a more wider debate on, on ESG. Um, just the final question then. Um, so it's around how can our members and businesses more generally benefit from the green industrial revolution and the reshoring of UK supply chains post COVID and Brexit. I mean, taking that, taking the last bit of that question first, I, I think there's there's still we're still trying to get a sense of how much reshoring is taking place. I think before the reshoring process takes place, there's also just this general recalibrating of supply chains. Uh, we know that a lot of supply chains are going via Asia or reliant on China. A lot of businesses might be looking at those again. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean retrenching from those markets, but potentially adding a bit more diversity into those supply chains. So, you know, if, if one supply chain is affected, then they can quickly move to a contingency one. Um, and I think broadly, we are seeing this kind of greater demand around trying to serve customers as quickly as possible. And that has generated a greater kind of um, trend towards regionalization and a, and a reshoring of business supply chains also you know made more possible i think by technology such as 3d printing i think there is a unique opportunity here um for the uk if if more businesses do see this as as an opportunity to reshore some supply chains and therefore supporting suppliers and industry in the uk i think there is important scope on that. I think it's just difficult at this stage to to ascertain how much of that is is taking place. And we shouldn't forget that, you know, part of the reason why we have international supply chains is because of the skills, resources uh, that are available in other parts of the world that, you know, might not be available um, in the UK. So, I mean, that might be a limit on, on how much we can do that. On, on, on the sort of green industrial revolution and, and how members can you know how to ensure members can take benefit, uh, take advantage of that um, green industrial revolution and, and and benefit. You know there are there are many things that we're we're going to be doing and, and continue to do to to support members on this in particular. You know we prov- provide a lot of information through our sustainable business hub, um, and and also providing forums for members to connect and to to have that peer to peer, um, advantage and, and and an opportunity to to share best practice and knowledge. Um, but we'll also actively be lobbying for the right types of policies to to uh, support members in navigating net zero goals. There's quite a lot for members, and particularly for SME directors, to come to 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 get to grips with. Um, and so it's really important that uh, 
directors have access to the right type of development and to the right type of um, training and, and, and resource to be able to, to be able to get ahead of this um, this green uh, industrial revolution and, and to benefit in the best possible way. Great. Yeah, I, I think the skills element of the green industrial revolution is is important. There's obviously a lot of firms who are just learning about what it means to to be you know reducing your carbon footprint what decarbonization actually looks in an organization and you know this is all quite technical stuff and so developing that expertise is going to be a, a crucial pillar of that and something that we're we'll be supporting at the iod um so those are all of our questions for today um thanks to everyone who sent through questions on the policy voice platform we'll be reopening questions again for our next business barometer breakfast so stay tuned for uh, the next episode. Thank you.